Live from Mexico City, this is The Morning Break with Graham Stanley, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Morning Break. Today's topic is gamification. I'll be looking at how gamification can help motivate learners and provide a stimulating environment. In this session, I'll also take a look at the meaning of fun and games, examine play and players, and explore how different game elements might be used in teaching and for what purpose. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Hello, everybody. Around about nine years ago, when gamification was just starting to be used in education, I presented at a few conferences what I'd been doing and what I'd seen others do to use elements of games to motivate learners in the classroom. And it became a very popular topic around then, and quite a few teachers adopted gamification practices. Back then, gamification also had its detractors who claimed that just stripping games of the points and leaderboard systems wasn't a good thing. Now, recently I was asked to present on the subject again, and I was surprised to find that most of the example I'd used nine years ago are still active and being used. The title of that presentation back then was Gamification, Magic Bullet, or Broken Sword. And it wasn't clear which of the two gamification was. The conclusion I came to back then was that Gamification was neither, of course, but used mindfully, there was much it could offer a teacher, but there were traps that you had to avoid. So I'll be revisiting this uh, today, and I hope you agree with me. If you do, or indeed, if you disagree with anything I say, and you're listening in live, then please come and join me in the studio and we can discuss it. To do so, download the Podbean app, visit ttr.org, and follow the instructions there on the Listen Live tab. Right now, though, we'll be taking a quick break and listening to the news. So I'm Graham Stanley, and you're listening to The Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has addressed school leaders at the Church of England National Education Conference. In a speech that recognised the achievements of Church of England schools and of teachers and leaders in schools across the country, she defined education as something that lets you do things you couldn't beforehand. She also reflected on her own experiences of being educated in a faith school, although it was a different denomination, Catholic. She spoke about the importance of a faith which is still a core part of who I am and recognised the work of faith schools, particularly Anglican schools, and the role they play in educating young people. She described the Church of England as one of my department's most valued partners, as the largest provider of academy trusts. Ms Keegan went on to say that her department would protect the schools so that when they became academies, they retained the statutory freedoms and protections that apply to church schools. She also used the speech to comment on standards and said, I agree with the Prime Minister on maths to 18, and praised a former teacher of hers, Mr Ashcroft, who helped her realise my one opportunity. The speech was not without reference to planned industrial action by teachers in the National Education Union, when she commented that for teachers to have an impact, they need to be in school, and stated that we will be funding schools in real terms at the highest level in history. The speech closed with a statement that her door is always open, but asked that you now work with me to keep as many children in schools as possible during the disruptive strike action. 
Ms Keegan ended with a focus on collaboration to make sure our education system flourishes for all children. Half of state schools in England and Wales will close on Wednesday as a result of the planned industrial action, according to reports in many media outlets. The action by NEU coincides with that being taken by civil servants, university staff and train drivers. While schools may close, many will remain open to pupils identified as vulnerable or at risk, as well as some schools offering places to the children of critical workers. The latest data from the Higher Education Statistics Agency shows that the number of EU students choosing to study in the UK has dropped by half since the UK left the EU. Enrolments by EU nationals dropped by 53%, from around 64,000 to 31,000 between 2020 and 2022. Whilst the number of non-EU nationals did increase at the same time period, the data shows that the UK universities still faced significant shortfalls. The exit from the EU and the changing international fee policy saw EU student fees rise from around £9,000 to as high as 38,000. The decline has been particularly sharp in student numbers from Italy, Germany and France. Similar falls have been seen in Scotland with many mourning the demise of the EU's Erasmus scheme, as well as the loss of diversity brought to courses by students from the EU. Universities UK said the changes in numbers had dented the finances of some universities and impoverished campus life. The HuffPost featured an article focusing on new data which shows that 87% of teenagers want better and more inclusive sex education. The survey by student discount app Student Beans found that 39% did not feel represented in the sex education they received. 27% of girls surveyed admitted they did not feel comfortable setting and communicating boundaries with a partner, compared to 23% of male respondents. 89% of all respondents said they did not see LGBTQIA themes in the teaching. With Generation Z having the highest percentage of non-straight people, almost double that of millennials, perhaps it's time for another review. Finally, Schools Week focuses on Ofsted's announcement on how it will conduct thematic reviews of alternative provision. Visits will take place in the spring and summer terms, with a national report out in the autumn. The visits will not result in judgments and the report will not identify local areas specifically, although they will be listed separately. There will be a focus on how AP supports children to stay in mainstream and full details are available on the Schools Week website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about GDPR, an acronym that has bounded around and caused quite a stir when it was first introduced back in 2018. GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation and it's governed by the ICO, which is the Information Controller's Office, an independent body set up by the government to uphold information rights. Ah, thanks Steve, that's crystal clear now, I hear you say. What does it mean? to the general classroom teacher. Well, your school will have a policy which you will have signed somewhere to say you've read it. If you haven't, it might be worth taking a look. In it, there'll be an outline of measures to protect data and usually a process of investigation in the event of a data breach. A data breach in a school is when personal data is compromised and a person can be identified, for example, first name and last name. In a school, Breaches can be as serious as the introduction of ransomware where data is locked by a cyber attack or as simple as the wrong letter being sent to the wrong carers. Now the question is how do we protect ourselves? First, if you're still wandering around with the USB pen hanging off your lanyard, make sure it's encrypted. There is lots of free encryption software around. If you can, migrate your data into the school's cloud. This puts the onus back on the school to keep the data safe. It's also backed up regularly. I know what you'll say next. If I'm in the cloud and the internet goes down, I can't get my planning. Yes, you're correct, but your school laptop will be encrypted. 
so you can save current files locally to enable working offline. If you have a machine with a small memory like a Chromebook, sync what you need and leave the rest in the cloud. With the top ads on a search for school data breach, all reading claim around £10,000 today. Obviously, no win, no fee. Do you want to cost your school that much money? I'll leave you with this. If you take a digital register and display it while you take it, could it be classed as a data breach. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back, folks. Today's topic is gamification. Now, gamification is very much embedded in our day-to-day lives although you might not know about it unless you take an interest or go looking for it. Where can you find these underground layers of gamification? Well, if you ever see children or indeed adults walking around glued to their mobile phone, but also looking around them, uh, then they may well be playing a game uh, such as Pokemon Go or or using another app that has an augmented reality layer of a game overlaid on on the physical on the physical place. Is that gamification? Well, arguably it's just a game, but unlike other games, these apps do encourage kids and adults to get out of the house because they want to go hunting monsters or accomplishing other tasks. And I know my nephew requests, especially to visit places, not because he wants to see the actual place or to be there, but because he wants to hunt and collect a monster he thinks will be hiding there. So there is now a whole secret layer of gamification going on all around us at work and at play if you are a runner too then it's likely that you may be gamifying your exercise by using a fitbit or a jawbone or other such device even if you don't own one of these devices it's likely you know someone who does or you've heard of it at least these are devices that measure the amount of the amount of paces you do and the amount of time that you spend running or walking, which allow you to measure your walking or running progress. And I remember back at a party in Montevideo some years ago, that one of the other guests noticed the horse wristband and started talking about it. And whereas the guest used hers to instill a bit of healthy competition between herself and her boyfriend, measuring the amount of exercise they both did, the horse and her, her whole family of four used it and tracked each other's exercise during the day. And apart from encouraging each other to walk more in this case, it brought family focus to an activity that they usually do, that people usually do alone. In addition, the woman said that it gave her peace of mind too, because the device allowed her to see where her teenage daughter was during the day. So adding a layer of points and providing competition Uh, is just one aspect of gamification. It's an aspect that is perhaps best called pointsification. If this is the only element of games that you use, of course, gamification can can mean much more than this. If you take running, for example, there's another running app that I've used and I really enjoyed when I did use it, and that's called Zombies Run. And that adds a story layer to your running about, surprise, surprise, zombies. So do you want to do exercise, but the idea of pounding the pavement bores you and the idea of just counting steps all the time that you're running isn't enough? Well, you can add a storyline to your running with this type of app. I don't know of any other, but this one is definitely a lot of fun. And it comes complete with dramatized story and soundtrack and music and missions for you to complete. It makes running a lot more fun for those of us who become easily bored by it. One app that didn't catch on despite being very popular uh, back then was the gamification app Foursquare. I don't know if any of you, that rings a bell with any of you. It's a It was a social network that allowed you to check into real life places in order to gain points and badges. And the application tracked your progress against your friends using a leaderboard for each of the places that you checked into and allowed you to see where in the world your friends were currently at. So it was a great application, I guess, for burglars or muggers. 
if you checked into a place more than anyone else, then you became the mayor. And in some businesses at the time, that meant you could get special offers, free coffee or other discounts, etc. Now, another layer to this social network is that it allows you to rate and see how other people reviewed places, such as restaurants, cafes, etc. And if you were in an unfamiliar place, then this would let you easily find uh, a place using your mobile phone and see what other people thought of it. So helping you to decide whether to visit a place or not. Foursquare still exists, but the gamification aspect was discontinued. So this is clearly a broken sword. Apart from exercise apps and location apps like Foursquare, there are now apps that let you gamify any part of your life. Uh, there's one, for example, called Epic Win that existed back then and still seems to be very popular, which allows you to build your own tasks and let you level up your life using anything you may want to do during your daily routine. Now, this could be used to motivate yourself to become more productive or simply turn some things you have to do into something more interesting instead. Epic Win is an app that allows you to turn your day-to-day -day chores into adventures. And you can earn points for doing the ironing, washing the dishes, cleaning the house, or doing any anything you have to do at work. Now, I've heard of one family that uses this effectively to persuade their teenagers to do more around the house. And after years of not wanting to help out, they were suddenly volunteering to clean and help, uh, and thus competing against each other as well. So there's another example of gamification in daily life that you may not be aware of. Now, of all the elements of your life that you can gamify, perhaps the most bizarre is gamifying sleep. And there are some apps such as Sleep as Android, which allows you to monitor your sleep activity, to measure how well you spend uh, the night sleeping. It will reward you for going to bed early. It will try to encourage you to, to sleep eight hours. And you can also record yourself so you can track when and how strong you snore or listen to what you say during the night. Or if you talk in the sleep, if you talk in your sleep, you can actually then listen back and hear what you say. And nine years later, this is still around. Okay, so all very well, but what about the classroom uh, and gamification? What about education? Well, let's look at what Jay Reinhard has written about what happens when someone plays a good digital game. When you're playing a good digital game, a computer, video or mobile game, a lot is going on. You're learning to play by playing, practicing and perfecting skills, acquiring bits of knowledge, setting goals and achieving them. You're deeply engaged, which means your attention is focused on playing at the cognitive, emotional and perhaps social level. As you achieve your goals, you're highly motivated to keep learning whatever it is you have to. New game rules, stories, language to keep playing. Now, that comes from a book by the language educator Jay Reinhardt, published in 2019, called Gameful Second and Foreign Language Teaching and Learning. And gamification, I think, has become particularly interest or teachers who teach languages have become particularly interested in in gamification I think now Reinhard continues this introduction to the book by saying that many second and foreign language educators are envious that an activity like digital gaming seems to have such power to engage and teach and rightly ask themselves whether they might harness some of that capacity for teaching language. Many students these days play digital games. Some are truly avid gamers. And if we could just transfer a bit of that gaming enthusiasm, engagement, and motivation to language learning, we just know it would be easier and more effective. But how? More of this in a moment. But first of all, let's briefly look at the terminology surrounding gamification, because there are lots of terms, and it's always worthwhile trying to unpick and unpack 
these to try and understand a little bit better what they all mean. So gamification, what, what is it exactly? Uh, I'm sure you already know, but a definition is the application of game design elements and game mechanics to non-game situations, such as the classroom, in order to motivate. This was a term that was first used in 2008, and it became prominent in 2010, thereabouts, but it also attracted, as I said before, a lot of criticism, which I'll also talk about today. Now, gamification is very different from other terms used in education when games are used. GBL, or game-based learning, um, that is one that is really about the use of games themselves within the classroom or within teaching and learning, game-based learning. And they could be games which are specifically written for education or off-the-shelf games that are designed for entertainment but adapted to education. And then there's another term called serious games, and that's a term when the game has been specifically designed for learning objectives, for teaching or learning something, and the whole focus of that game is around that rather than entertainment at all, which may not even uh, feature. Alternative names have been put forward by people who don't like the term gamification, and these are sometimes used. As in Reinhardt's book, gameful is a term which is often used these days. So gameful design, game thinking is another term. Now the term game thinking has been proposed as to be used in contrast with gamification to refer to when there's a focus on applying deeper game elements to learning than the usual ones of points, badges, and leaderboards that are often adopted by proponents of gamification. In general, however, the term gamification is the one that has stuck and um, is used more often than any other by people. Now, another term that has been used is uh, certainly in well, when it comes to language learning and teaching, is game-informed L2TL, which refers to uh, second language teaching and learning. So game-informed second language teaching and learning. And effectively, this is gamification, but uh, used specifically when the teaching and learning of the second languages um, is being gamified. So when educators combine their knowledge of um, second language acquisition and second language pedagogical practice with insights and understanding from theories of games and play. Uh, yeah. So I'll continue, I think, to use the term gamification today, but um, I will be speaking specifically about some deeper elements of games, deeper than just the points, badges and leaderboards that a lot of people think of as gamification. Speaking of which, critics Critics of the use of gamification, they often complain that it's all about stripping the superficial aspects of games, the points, badges and leaderboards that you find in a lot of games and adding them to the classroom, classroom activities, etc. And they argue that this promotes a very behaviorist way of learning and teaching. A big critic of gamification in education and beyond is Ian Bogost, the games designer. And he has said on his blog, bogost.com, B-O-G-O-S-T.com, that game developers and players have critiqued gamification on the grounds that it gets games wrong, mistaking incidental properties like points and levels for primary features. There's a lot more to Ian's, Ian Bogost's criticism, um, I do recommend you read it. I think it it definitely is a word of warning for any teacher who is, suddenly becomes interested in adopting gamification. It does help you try and understand what the potential traps are and the argument against doing so. Now, a proponent of gamification who is particularly interesting um, in general, not specifically for uh, education is Yu Kai Cho, and he has written extensively on gamification. He has quite an interesting system, 
when it comes to points, badges, and leaderboards, though, he also raises a word of warning. And he says, if you ask any gamer what makes a game fun, they will not tell you that it's because of the points, badges, and leaderboards. They play it because there are elements of strategy and great ways to spend time with friends, or they want to challenge themselves to overcome difficult obstacles, etc. And that's an important thing um, to keep in mind. It's not the points, badges, and leaderboards that make a game what it is. So, of course, having said that, PBL, points, badges, and leaderboards, do have a place in game design, and they have the ability to motivate behavior and push people towards certain actions. But, of course, gamification is so much more than PBL. If that's all you use, then you're just using shallow game mechanics and simply incorporating these game mechanics and game elements does not also make something fun. And so don't think that just by applying points, badges and leaderboards to your classroom activities will automatically make your classroom fun and your lessons engaging. That's not what game elements, uh, it's not what game elements you put in to it it's how and why these game elements appear and what you use them for that's important it's also important of course not to take the fun out what about fun isn't that what games are all about and the reason why they work so well well i'll come to that but first let's look at the nature of games and of play so when it comes to games and play I think it's worth spending time looking at the differences between the two. An American child psychologist called Bruno Bethlehem has provided these following interesting, useful definitions. Um, games are externally, games have externally imposed rules and goals, and play has freedom from all but imposed impersonally impose rules and it has no goals a game designer called raf costa k-o-s-t-e-r he stated that like it or not we live in a world of systems and it's partly up to us whether we want to treat a given system as a game doing so can make interacting with that system more fun and we can end up getting more out of it so he argues for um, for gamification, I think, um, even though he's not explicit about it. And Costa has argued that these days we know more about games and more about play and fun than ever before. And I think that comes from the focus because of the video game industry on trying to understand what works and what doesn't work and what people actually uh, enjoy doing. And... Although he's argued that never before be known so much about games, about playing, about fun, it's the concept of fun that is most difficult to define. Fortunately, Costa, the games designer, has written a very good book about it called A Theory of Fun for De Game Design. And we'll take a brief look at that because it is something I do recommend anyone who is interested in games and learning and teaching should read now in the in that book there is a quotation by another famous and very well renowned video games designer called chris crawford he said that fun was the emotional response to learning which is interesting if you're a teacher and he meant that much of the interest in video games is to do with players learning how the games work and learning how to best live in the worlds and to move forward according to their rules. So there is a, a definite connection between learning and fun and games. Raf Costa again has said, fun in games arrives out of mastery. It comes from comprehension and it's the act of solving puzzles that make games fun. With games, learning is the drug. So again, the connection between fun and learning. And Costa took Crawford's statement and turned it into that interesting book that has become a must for any games designer. It's also recommended reading, as I said, if you're an educator interested in games. He claims the book 
in the book that the learning is the drug or the real reason why players want to play games. And he believes that games are systems built to help us learn patterns. And fun is the reward to encourage us to keep on trying. Now, another games designer, Nicole Latero, has gone a step forward, a step further, rather, and she has identified four different types of fun. And if you are designing activities that try to make use of games and try to uh, use fun, uh, then I think it's worthwhile keeping in mind these four different types of fun because it's important to have a balance when designing an activity with games. So you should consider each of them. Don't just design an activity that appeals to one type of fun because there's a danger that you'll exclude some of your learners. What are these types of fun? Well, there's people fun, which comes from uh, playing a game for social aspects, for friendship, etc. There's hard fun, which um, in, is basically revolves around the challenge of the game. So if you play anything like crossword puzzles, for example, or things that really mentally stimulate you, that would be the hard fun aspect. Then there's easy fun, which she defines as uh, the novelty that you get from playing something new. So if you're playing something that is original, is new, it takes you outside of your normal life, for example, that would be the easy fun. And then the serious fun, which I think is the one that educators are uh, should be most interested in this idea of actually learning, uh, playing something to learn something for the meaning, etc. So again, crosswords, I think, um, include that. And all that brings us back to gamification. So might, might, why might we want to use gamification in the classroom? Well, gamification, I think, can encourage good behaviours with instant positive feedback and it can make dull or dry activities fun. And let's look at the first of these now and how uh, you might apply it to the classroom. And again, it could be argued that teachers all over the world are already gamifying behavior. If you're a teacher of children, for example, then it's unlikely that you've not set class rules for behavior or use some kind of reward and punishment system to help you manage your class. Things like reward charts, which can be an excellent tool that can help you build consistency in establishing good behaviours in your students. Reward and behaviour charts, for example, help encourage positive behaviour in kids. They teach children to set goals, teach responsibility, and they track progress for the child, the parents, and the teacher to see. And I think getting it, it's known that getting the best from your students often means tapping into a need for recognition and praise, which this type of tool can help you with. Some potential problems, of course, with things like reward charts, including the kids seeing the rewards as the goal and not the behaviour. Some kids also giving up if they fall behind the others, if you're using some kind of star chart. So you have to be careful of that. And then, you know, you have to be wary that the best kids always win and it is quite a behaviorist notion of um, education now although behavior management is definitely not an issue in some educational contexts i think it's true to say that it's vital in others and if you teach anywhere where you have a group of students who want to be there and who are already intrinsically motivated to learn or even those who have found their own extrinsic motivations for learning, career advancement, etc., then there is no need for any kind of behaviour management, um, and it shouldn't. They shouldn't be with adults, for example, but with children and teenagers, it's a different matter. And you certainly wouldn't want to complicate your life by adding a layer of gamification, um, such as points and badges and leaderboards, to that kind of scenario. So it's not needed. However, it's most likely that if you teach kids or teenagers, you will have at some point in your teaching career have needed some kind of behavior management system, whatever it is, to help settle the students, make it possible for them to learn anything without some kind of rules um, to uh, um, 
to make the students understand what is expected of them when it comes to behavior in the classroom, then you'll probably be spending much of the classroom trying to capture the attention of the learners and make them listen to you and your classmates and their classmates. And the behavior management then is fundamental, I think, in many educational contexts. There's one book I recommend, and this is by Tom Bennett in the UK. And Tom, in, in his book on behavior management, uh, focuses on be bad behavior of all different types and provides a lot of advice of how to deal with specific situations. And he is a strong believer in the stick, sanctions, in other words, over the carrot, rewards, because he thinks that it's perhaps easier for teachers to think of rewards and more difficult for them to impose sanctions. Tom has said that with kids, behavior management is fundamentally good teaching. If you can't control them, you can't teach them and they won't learn, which is quite a strong argument, I think. Now, you need to be in charge of the room, according to Tom. You need to talk like you expect to be heard. You need to be prepared to act tough. Think about how you move. Keep your cool. Don't raise your voice. Punish behavior you disapprove. Reward behavior you like. Be consistent, fair, and proportional, which is all good advice. But what about gamification of behavior management? Well, there's one very popular online digital star chart that I've used that works for gamifying behavior. It's a tool called Class Dojo. And this allows you to add your students to a digital um, system and award points, positive or negative, for whatever you decide to do. And the records of the students can be records of the students can be kept, so their behavior can be tracked over time. And even you can use it with parents. You can share uh, what looks like a professional chart during meetings if you have any meetings with the with the parents of the children. Now, Class Dojo is aimed at younger kids, definitely. And there are other systems such as Classcraft, which can be used with um, older students. Perhaps um, the ideal age for Classcraft is young teenagers or preteens. And rather than a simple digital behavior system, Classcraft is, is a lot more than this and can help gamify learning too. This turns classroom tasks into a fantasy role-playing adventure game. And if that's something that uh, you think might appeal, then I do recommend you check it out. Now, after using Class Dojo with students, I switched to an even simpler system and introduced a virtual currency into my classroom. I did this specifically to try and manage the amount of English that a particular class spoke. So I was an English language teacher and I had a hard time encouraging these students to speak only English in class because their use of Spanish, this was in Barcelona, was becoming disruptive. So rather than think of sanctions for those who spoke Spanish, I introduced money into the classroom, so virtual money, and printed, I printed my own euros, Graham euros, and rewarded the students for their use of English, as well as some other things such as arriving to class on time, which was something that some of the children uh, had difficulty doing. And during the class, I would just reward them for certain activities and giving them virtual money and taking money off any student who spoke Spanish. And I started giving this money to students who told me that their classmates were speaking Spanish as well. So the children ended up being the language police in the classroom. And it did have a particularly uh, effect. It was particularly effective in promoting only English in the classroom, which uh, so it works in a way. I was surprised how well it did work, actually. And unlike other systems like Star Chart or Class Dojo, for example, we have to interrupt the flow of your class to award points. This was instant and I would spend very little time pulling out a note from the back pocket and handing it to a student. Now, another reason why this worked was the monthly auctions I held in class and the currency therefore had real value and was seen to be more than just pieces of paper. And I collected a number of free gifts and other items that typically the school would have, pencils, badges, rubbers, badges, bags, stickers, etc., and uh, things I got from conferences, etc., as well. And I auctioned these off to the highest bidders. 
this would take place in the last five minutes of class at the end of the month, and so it wouldn't take up much time. So I found this virtual currency did not interrupt the flow of an activity or class. Uh, it was important that there needed to be something for them to buy at some point with the with the actual money. And you did um, need to take a lot of care not to make the currency acquisition the main motivator in class. That was very difficult. I didn't overdo it. I only used it um, for a certain period of time and then stopped once they had um, the habit of speaking more in English. It worked wonders to create an English-only environment and you needed to be very careful not to overuse it, I think. So one thing I noticed during the auctions and using this system was the difference between the students. Some of the students would hoard their virtual money and never spend it. They preferred to save it and would count it often at the beginning of class, etc., keeping it safe in their folders and boasting to each other about how much money they had saved. And then others would spend it as soon as they could. And then there were others who would save it up and spend it on specific items they knew would be auctioned. As you gamify your class, I think you'll notice that students adopt different roles and you need to be observant about this. And they're interested in different elements of play, a bit like the four types of fun I mentioned before. And there is another very interesting tool that was developed by a game designer called Richard Bartle, which is called Richard Bartle's Player Types. Because whenever you create a game or gamify an activity for class, you should keep in mind that your players will be motivated to play in different ways, either competitively against each other or for other reasons. If you don't take this into account when you're gamifying your classroom, then you may not be successful when it comes to gamification. Now, this Bartle's player types aspect may, be, may sound a little bit like pseudoscientist science. And it's definitely that whatever your students are like and how they play games will be a lot more complicated than just this. But I think it, it is interesting to use it. Now, Bartle's player types divides players into four different types of players. And they are called killers, achievers, socializers, and explorers. So killers, that's the name for, as the term suggests, players who, who are ruthlessly competitive. So they get most of their fun out of competing with others. Then you have achievers, who are players who play to gain success or, and or prestige. Socializers, of course, they play for the social aspects of the game and um, they're there to, to spend time with others. And explorers play to discover new areas of a game or new possibilities, etc. So these are the four types of players, according to Bartle. And when you do the Bartle test, and you can go online and search for Richard Bartle, Bartle test, and you can actually give it a go to find out what kind of player you are, you will get a percentage of each of those. So it won't tell you you're one or the other, one of these four types, but it'll tell you what a percentage killer you are when you're playing games, what a percentage achiever you are, socializer, explorer, etc. I think this is very interesting. And it's not that you need to do this with students unless they're, um, they're gamers. You could with older students actually talk about this. It's quite an interesting thing for, for students who are particularly interested in computer games, for example, to know what type of games they like or what type of player they are. But I think keeping this in mind will definitely help you um, when you're designing any activities. So you need to appeal to these four types of players for your activity to be successful, I think. And if you want to go a step further than this, then I do recommend a book uh, called The Multiplayer Classroom by Lee Sheldon. And this is uh, a very interesting study because Lee converted his own course into a role-playing game. So he completely 
gamified the whole classroom and the whole course that he was teaching. He awarded experience points and achievements and students in his class in this course leveled up rather than getting pass or fail grades and he explained uh, he explains in a lot of detail throughout the book why this worked uh, for his students and how best to structure the levels and how and when to award points based on his own experience it's a fascinating study and each of the chapters goes through the changes that he made during the course or during the different courses to perfect his system which uh, if you work through the book then you get an idea of the kind of things you need to take into to account and the, the traps you need to avoid using sheldon's book as a model i gamified i've gamified parts of my classes in the past one simple way of encouraging things like attendance and homework completion is to have a system and you don't have to have anything else in your class of what's called unloved achievements now these are points or badges that can be awarded under certain circumstances um, in your classroom you typically their achievements that they're either explicit or hidden and they're unlocked when certain criteria are, um, are are completed so in other words I had an achievement for total class attendance. So if every single student from the class came to class on a particular day, then I awarded points and badges. If there were total achieve attendance from all students uh, during one month, then that would be another unlocked achievement. If all the class did their homework, then that would be another one. And any time a student got all answers correct on a test for example they would unlock another one etc etc you can make them for any type of thing that you need to encourage in the classroom and it's just another layer if you like um, of what's happening in the class that rewards students for good behavior or for doing certain things that you want them to do you can gamify of course more specific areas of your class I gamified, as I, as I said before, I'm uh, an English language teacher, so I gamified writing in one of my classes. And I decided to do that because I did a survey uh, of the class to find out what aspects of language that these 12 year olds, uh, these 12 year olds had problems with and discovered that the main difficulty they had and what they found boring and difficult was with writing long texts in English. So I decided to experiment with gamification to see if I could change their attitude towards long texts and make an activity of the writing feel more like fun because they found writing bo bo uh, long texts boring and difficult as well as helping the students to, to do it. Given what they found difficult and boring was long texts i decided to turn into a game the writing of long text by encouraging speed reading speed writing sorry and I, it, this would only take up five minutes of their time each class so it wasn't something that would take up particularly long periods of the class so during five minutes of each class i encouraged them to write as much as they could on a particular topic and we also negotiated the topic I allowed them certain freedom in what they would write about. I gave them suggestions for those who wanted that kind of prompting. And this negotiation of the topic, I thought, would help motivate them too. And in the five minutes, the students would write as much as they could without interruption. And then I would stop them and take in their books, circling the mistakes and subtracting the number of mistakes from the total number of words they've written. And that would give a figure which became their points. Then I would prepare a little leaderboard uh, with the students who had written the most. And each week, uh, because it was a weekly class, the numbers I would display on the, uh, on the screen. So at the beginning of class, they would see, and when we did the activity, they would see who, what kind of progress they were making. Now, during the five 
classes that I did this, and I only did it for five classes, I saw a massive amount of progress in some students. So one student, for example, went from being able to write 90 words in English in the first time, the first time she did it, and then 306 words the second time. And this is 306 words that without mistakes. So she was the best achieving student. Other students did very well as well, moving from 100 words to over 250, etc. That was the majority of the class. What I did notice, though, was the there were other students who struggled. So in other words, I had one student who was able to write 100 words the first time we tried it. And then the next two classes, she was only able to write about 65 words. And this was an indication there was another student as well whose numbers of words went down rather than up in the first couple of times that I did this. It's an indication of what happens when you try to gamify an activity, that it doesn't work with everybody, that this was demotivating for these two students in particular because they didn't feel like they were ever going to be at the top of the leaderboards or they didn't feel that they they feel like they were motivated to write more. They were just in the class writing for those five minutes and they felt a little bit stressed about it. So I try to help counter this by what I mentioned before, to make there more than one way of, in inverted commas, winning the game. And by adding these achievements, um, off, uh, offering badges to the students. And I, for example, noticed that although these two students were writing fewer words in the uh, classes that followed the first one, that they were, for example, one of them was making very few mistakes, hardly any mistakes, certainly the fewest mistakes in the whole of the class. So she was taking a lot of time to write very accurately. And I then, so I started awarding her with a writing achievement badge for uh, fewest mistakes. And then the other student, I thought her writing was particularly creative. So I gave her achievement badge for being very creative. And this tended seemed to encourage them. So in their number of words that we were writing actually increased. So it went from 62 in one case to 150 the next class. So this is an example of when you do gamify something in your class, an activity like this, you do need to monitor very carefully the effect that it's having on your students and make sure that it's actually having the positive effect that you wanted to. If it isn't, then you should stop it or change it. And this is definitely something I had. And this is also why I didn't want this to continue forever. So after five uh, weeks of doing it when I I felt happy that all of the students were actually writing at a higher level and it seemed to have they've seemed to have reached their own balance of how many words they could comfortably write without making lots of mistakes in those five minutes I stopped and then I gave them a survey again and what I noticed was the results were extremely dif different. So in other words, most of the students now said they either really liked or liked writing uh, longer texts. And some of them still hated it, but fewer than, um, than said so at the beginning of the activity. And all of the students said that they either found the writing of long texts in English a lot easier or um, less difficult uh, than they had before. There wasn't a single student who said it wasn't, uh, it was more difficult than when we'd first started. So I consider that a, um, a success story, if you like. And this is an example of action research that I carried out in my classroom as well. I do recommend this is a way you should approach gamification if you try to do it in your class. That's an example of of, um, of writing. I also uh, gamified speaking, and I did that again 
using with uh, with a particular methodology in mind. And this was, again, with English language teaching, there's a methodology called demand high. If you look that up, if you're interested in it. Um, it's all about trying to encourage students to, to be better than we normally do. So in other words, the two educators, Adrian Underhill and Jim Scrivener, uh, ELT educators, came up with this idea of demand high because they noticed that a lot of teachers and they observed a lot of teachers teaching uh, in their in their jobs were not asking their students to do much within the uh, within the class and they were also praising students a lot more than they should so they were praising students for uh, for doing things that weren't particularly praiseworthy and their idea was that rather than just praising students for coming up with lackluster responses, for example, in particular when it came to speaking, then we should really try to uh, push students to upgrade their language and to be able to do a lot more in class than we were asking them to do, to improve their skills more than they believed were possible. And the idea of trying to encourage that became something I realized I could try and do with, with a speaking activity that involved computer game. So I actually took a computer game that had different puzzle states. It's a computer game called Droppy, which still exists. And I took screenshots of the initial state um, of, they're like mini games, which had a puzzle that you had to solve with each of the mini games. And the initial screenshot showed uh, what happened before the puzzle had been solved, and then I took a screenshot at the end once the puzzle, puzzle had been solved and this then I presented to the students. I said, this is a before and after. And I asked the students to describe the before and after states. And then I asked them whether they knew what had happened in this case to be able to get to the end state. I Asked for volunteers and a student would come up with whatever they try to, uh, however they best they try to describe it. But then I, um, I would ask another student to see if they could actually describe it in a better way and continue until we'd reached the stage where we had a very accurate description of what each of the states would, would be. It's a very difficult activity to describe without showing you the pictures, so I'm not going to go any further than this. But what I thought was really interesting was that this was a way of being able to not just accept the first response from a student, but to encourage other students to try and say something a bit better, a bit more accurately afterwards, and to continue doing that until we reached a point where we, as a class, were happy that the description of something was as good as it could get from the students. I found it fascinating and definitely was a way of encouraging great accuracy and fluency from my uh, students when it came to English. So there we are. These are some examples of, um, of gamifying language in the classroom, gamifying activities. There are a lot more, but I'm running out of time. And so I'm going to wind things up. I would like to thank all of you who have tuned in to listen live and also thanks to all of you who are listening back to the recording and have made it this far to the end of the show. And remember, of course, that there are Teachers Talk radio shows on all week and I should be back next week with a guest and I hope you can join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.